And we have sung about the cross, and so now we are going to turn our attention in God's word to the cross. I invite you to join me in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we took a little hiatus over the summer from our study in John's gospel, and so we are picking up where we left off, John chapter 12, and we are coming to verses 27 through 36 for this morning in the next few weeks, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. I have been looking forward to uh, gathering with you in this text for a few months now. We finally get to come here together. Let me read the passage. This is Jesus speaking, starting in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He walks in the darkness, does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. You can stop there. This is a passage about Christ's cross. That's clear from verses 32, 33, and 34. And Jesus, predicting what is coming, says, if I am lifted up from the earth, that's a picture of what will soon take place. Christ will be lifted up off of the ground on a piece of wood. This is made clear in verse 33. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death, the crucifixion, by which he was to die. Even have the crowd repeat Jesus' words. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Again, the cross takes center stage. This is the hour that Jesus has in mind here that was mentioned previous. For this purpose, I came to this hour. This is the hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion. A passage about the cross. Out of all the truths of the Christian faith, it is the death of Christ that is the most precious and the most wonderful and the most glorious. Why? Because it is on the cross where we see the greatest display of God's love and grace united together in one event. It is on the cross where we see divine mercy personified. 
It is on the cross where undeserved salvation was purchased. Take away the cross. Without the cross, there would be no hope. Take away the cross, there would be no substitute for us. Take away the cross, there would be no forgiveness, no sacrifice, no justification, no redemption, no adoption into God's family, no reconciliation with God. So let's now connect this to what we've looked at over the summer. Take away the cross and all of those spiritual blessings we looked at, all of those spiritual blessings, they're meaningless. We would have none of them. The Christian gospel is the gospel of the cross. This is why in the Old Testament you have the cross prophesied. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. This is why as you fast forward to the end of the Bible, you have the angels in heaven looking back and giving praise to Christ for his cross. This is why we love the cross. And why we've just sung about the cross and why we glory in the cross and rest on the cross and proclaim the cross. Christians are cross-centered people who have been commanded to live cross-centered lives. The Christian gospel is the gospel of the cross. And thus, as we come to this passage, it is a joy to us. Now, look at verse 27. It is agony for Jesus. He's troubled. Though it's agony for Jesus, it is a joy to us because we see just how crucial, how crucial Christ's cross is to the Christian faith, to the Christian life. And this is not a passage about the cross in general. This is a passage about the power of Christ's cross. This is a passage about the effects that only the cross of Jesus could cause. And what makes it so significant is the one who's explaining the power of the coming cross. This is Jesus who will hang on that cross, who will be lifted up on the cross. He's explaining the old rugged cross. Now it's been a little while, so let's take a step back, remember where we are. Verse 27 opens, we're in Jerusalem, we're in the temple, this is still Monday of Jesus' Passion Week, he has entered his father's house humbly, just as Zechariah predicted, synoptic gospels tell us that for the second time Christ has infuriated the religious leaders, he's cleansed the temple. He's driven out the money changers. He's pronounced divine judgment upon this place. There's been a shift. Look at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, Greeks come to the Messiah. Uh, They want to come to him in faith. There's a shift here. And so Jesus knows what this signifies Verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified here meaning crucified. Jesus' life is quickly coming to an end. He knows it. And he's predicted this for the last three years. Back in chapter 2, Jesus explained exactly what the religious leaders would one day do to him. Destroy this temple, 
John notes, he's speaking of the temple of his body. Destroy, that's what you're going to do. You're going to destroy me. You're going to go to war with me. He knows what's coming. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Same imagery he uses here in John chapter 12. In John 8, Jesus says, when, not if, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you crucify me. In John 10, remember what Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life. He knows what's coming. He knows his fate. Not only does he know his fate because of that inter-Trinitarian communication he has with the Father through the Spirit, but he knows his fate because he knows the Old Testament Scriptures. He knows what must happen to the Messiah. He knows Psalm 22. That dogs will surround him. A band of evildoers will encompass him and they will pierce the Messiah's hands and feet. He must be pierced through. He knows Isaiah 53. He will be pierced through for our transgressions. He knows Zechariah 12.10. He will be the pierced God. He knows the piercing nails of the cross await him. And he knows all the details, all the details of what is coming just a little while before this event that we're reading here in Mark chapter 10, as Jesus is leading his apostles into Jerusalem for that last time, Jesus says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered. He will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, speaking of his coming trial. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's significant. Why? Because what do the Gentiles do for execution? They crucify. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I will be crucified. They will mock the Son of Man. They will spit on him. They will scourge him with that whip. They will kill him, crucify him. For three years, Jesus has predicted his coming death. But now as verse 27 opens, Jesus shifts from predicting his physical sufferings, all the mocking, all the beating, even the betrayal, from predicting his physical sufferings, he's now explaining in the spiritual realm what his coming death will do. He's giving doctrine. He's teaching Again, this is the power of the cross. From prediction to now explanation. The cross can do what nothing else can do. And what we see here are seven effects of Christ's powerful cross. Seven effects of Christ's cross. Again, only what the cross can do. And we will look at the first two, maybe the first two this morning. Let's begin with the effect number one. Effect number one. Christ's cross had the power to trouble the Savior's soul. Christ's cross had the power to trouble the Savior's soul. Verse 27, now, Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled. Jesus is experiencing anguish as verse 27 opens. This is trauma. This is turmoil. Turmoil. 
The word troubled is the verb terasso. It's a strong word. You could translate it as shocked. My soul has become shocked. This is perplexity, agitation, even revulsion. We saw the same response from Jesus in chapter 11 when Jesus stood before Lazarus' tomb. You remember that. We're told Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Same word. And what we saw there is that it wasn't Lazarus' death that troubled Jesus. That's not what's troubling his soul there. No, it's troubling Jesus' Lazarus' coming resurrection That's what's troubling him. Why? Because Jesus knows in order for Jesus to call Lazarus out of the grave, he knows he must go into the grave. Jesus was troubled because when he looked at Lazarus' grave, he saw his own. He knows what he must do. Turn over to chapter 13 for a moment. We'll see this word again. It's not some isolated incident. On the night before his death, he predicts Judas' betrayal. Look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became, same word, agitated, troubled, shocked in spirit. What we're seeing here is that as the days of Jesus' death grow closer, the turmoil he feels only deepens, it worsens. In fact, in verse 27, the verb troubled there, it's in the perfect tense. It means that Jesus was always in a continual state of being shocked and troubled, but now, now as the final minutes of his life tick away, the turmoil builds, you know, speaks of it. The words of one commentator, Jesus' reaction, his agitation that we read here beats eloquent testimony to the awfulness of of the hour. The hour has come. Another commentator writes, Jesus had long foreseen his coming death, but now that the shadow of the actual cross fell upon him, he felt the shuddering horror of the terrible ordeal. Here's the power of the cross. It shocked the Savior. The cross made him tremble So we must ask the why question. Why is Jesus so shocked as he contemplates his cross? Why is he in so much turmoil here? The answer is this. Jesus knows what the cross means for him. He knows what it means for him in the spiritual realm, not physically. He knows that. But he knows what it means for him in the spiritual realm. It means angry wrath will soon break upon his head. It means divine forsakenness will be experienced by him. It means spiritual death. He will be abandoned by his father. This is a kind of inner turmoil experienced by no man except the eternal son. He knows he will soon become a curse for us, Galatians 3. He will become a curse. The Christ becomes a curse He knows 1 Peter 2, he will bear our sins in his body on the cross. The son will become the sin bearer. 
The anguish here is all spiritual. It's distress over, again, verse 27. This hour, this hour, it's repeated two times in verse 27. This is the predestined moment. This is the prophesied time. Jesus knows the hour of the final sacrifice for sin has now arrived. Again, look up to verse 23. Jesus is just simply building on what he just said. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. This is different. Up to this point, Jesus has always said, the hour's not yet. Still in the future, but now the hour's come. It's here, it's now. What will this hour entail? Verse 24, he knows he must like a grain of wheat, fall into the earth and die. And this is shaking his soul. It's shaking his soul. Now this response though, this tremble, this troubling response should come as no surprise though. Because this is the response we should expect from the truly incarnate one. This is evidence that he is indeed God become man. It's evidence of that. Why? Because before the incarnation, the son only experienced joy, never pain. But now, spiritual pain is coming. Before the incarnation, the son only experienced life, not death, but now death is coming. Before the incarnation, the son only experienced fellowship, not forsakenness. Love, never anger. Righteousness, never sin. But all of that is about to change for Jesus. The turmoil within Jesus as he contemplates his cross is the necessary response if Jesus is truly God. This is the necessary response. As fully God, truly God, the thought of sin being laid upon him must shock him. As fully God, Christ must hate sin. He must hate sin. He must be revulsed then by the cross where sin will be laid upon him. He must be shocked by the cross where sin will be credited to him. He hates sin. He must shudder at the cross knowing that he who knew no sin would soon become sin. The turmoil here is not a sign of any weakness within Jesus. This is not weakness. This is holy strength. No human experience of sorrow, no human experience of turmoil even remotely compares to what Jesus is experiencing here. The very thought of alienation from his father horrifies him, and it should. But not only do we see Jesus' godness with the response, we also see Jesus' full humanity here as well. Because as the troubled soul of Christ builds here, what does he do? He quickly turns to faithful obedience to his father. Continue to verse 27. What shall I say, Jesus asks, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He recognizes the crossroads he faces. 
Will he remain the course that has been set before him? Will he die as the Father commissioned him to die? Will he experience the sin he hates? Will he lose the fellowship with his Father that he loves? It's on one side. Or will he divert from his mission? Will he break under the strain? Will he retreat into safety? Jesus' question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is a real question. This is a real struggle. The cross hangs in the balance with these words. Which path am I going to choose is the question. Which road am I going to walk? He's verbalizing his troubled soul here. This is similar to what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, right? And by the way, this is all for free right now. John does not record the Garden of Gethsemane event in Jesus' life. He does not record it. Why doesn't John record it? Why does he let the synoptics, the other three gospels, keep that in their gospels? Why does he not record it here? Because he doesn't have to. What does John do? He records the troubled soul of Jesus in chapter 11 with Lazarus, chapter 12 here, and then in chapter 13 predicting Judas' betrayal. What takes place? What takes place in the garden? Three times, right? Three times we read of Jesus' troubled soul. And John doesn't record that. Instead, he records Jesus' troubled soul at three times leading to the cross. He doesn't have to record Gethsemane. This is similar, though. John knows that. Just listen to how the other Gospels record the Gethsemane event, we read that Jesus was deeply grieved to the point of death. That's why the angel comes later to strengthen him. He's deeply grieved to the point of death. What does he do? He falls on his face and he prays. What is his prayer? My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That's the same question here in verse 27. Father, save me from this hour. There are only two alternatives, either be abandoned by God or abandon the mission. Only two alternatives. It doesn't take Jesus long to decide which path he will choose. Finish the verse. But, strong adversative, translated this way, no, no, no. No, for this purpose I came to this hour. He rejects the idea Just like in Gethsemane where Jesus answers his own prayer and then commits himself to the cross. Jesus does the same here. I will not deviate from my mission, Jesus says. I will not deviate. I choose obedience. I choose to go to the cross in faith. Mark those words, in faith. This is the full humanity of Christ coming to the front. At this point, at this point, Jesus, as he's done his entire life, he is choosing to live by faith in his Father's promises. That is all Jesus has to grasp onto at this point. Jesus is about to experience something he has never experienced before, death. Can God die? Answer is no. Can God incarnate die? Yes. 
He's going to experience something he's never experienced before. He's going to experience sin bearing, wrath, punishments. And all he has to cling to is his father's character and the father's promises. He has to cling to the truth that his father is good and loving and faithful. He has to cling to the the thought that his father can be trusted. He has to believe his father's promises that in his coming death, that would not be the end of him. He must believe the promises of Psalm 22, that though he will be forsaken, remember how Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He must believe that though he will be forsaken, in the middle of that psalm, there's a transition, and all of a sudden you see the one forsaken is in the assembly of the righteous with the Father. He must believe Psalm 22. He must believe the promise of Psalm 16, that though he will enter the grave, he will not be left in the grave. must cling to the promise of Isaiah 53. Yes, he is going to be crushed by the Father. Please the Lord to crush him. But then that promise that after the crushing, the crushed one sees those whom he has purchased and he's satisfied. Jesus chooses the cross here. He says, no, 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 I must go to the cross because he's choosing that in faith. This is an example of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. We, believers, must fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the author and perfecter of faith. What does that mean? He lived by faith. He chose obedience through faith. We see him doing that here. Because of his holiness, he shudders at the cross. In his humanity, he chooses the cross in faith. One commentator put it so well, the horror of death, spiritual death, the horror of death and the ardor of his obedience were meeting together here. We're seeing that battle. Again, this is the power of the cross. It does what nothing else can do. It staggered our Savior's soul. It trembled his heart. That's how weighty the cross is. That's how significant Christ's death was. Now let's bring some application here. Because the troubled soul of our Savior reveals so much for us. And I just want to note five applications. We could know obviously more here. Five applications. Look at the first one. Troubled soul of Christ reveals just how much Christ loves his father. Just how much Christ loves his father. Love for the father drove Jesus to the cross. Love for his father undergirded his faithful obedience. Despite the certain horror that awaited him and the uncertainty of facing what he has never faced before, again, death, sin bearing, in love he obeys. He lives out John 14, 15. If you love me, what will you do? You'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. Christ loves his father. And how do we know he loves his father? He loves him to the point 
of obedience. The application for us is this. Our obedience begins with our love for our Savior. Second, Christ's turmoil here reveals just how worthy of obedience the Father is. Just how worthy of obedience the Father is. Listen to 1 Peter 2. While suffering, while suffering, Christ kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How does Christ endure the suffering of his soul? He keeps entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is to say, Christ obeyed his Father because everything the Father does, everything the Father commands is righteous and it is good. This is why the Son is not doubting, will not doubt the Father. His Father always judges righteously. He makes no errors in his decisions. Again, his plans are always good and perfect. Christ's cross is the greatest example of this. It was good for the Holy One to be made sin. The very sin he hated, it was good. It was good for the righteous one to suffer and experience his father's abandonment. That was good. You can bring it to us. How much more? How much more? Is Christ's faithful obedience here as he contemplates that awful cross? How much more is this a call for us, for us to walk in obedience to our Father even when we do not understand all that he's asking us to do? How much more? In those instances, what do we do? We do the same as Christ did. We fall on the perfect character of God. He is good, he is faithful, he is true. And in faith, we believe that all of his judgments are perfect. Third application. Third application. Christ's turmoil also reveals just how deep Christ's love and sympathy for us is. This reveals just how deep Christ's love and sympathy for us is. Jesus' struggle with his cross shows that he knows full well, he knows full well what it means to walk by faith. He knows by experience the great effort it takes to live in obedience to his Father's will. He knows that by experience. Which is why Jesus is called our great high priest. Hebrews 4, we have a high priest who sympathizes, who can feel our struggles, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And this is why then, because of this great high priest who sympathizes with us, this is why we now can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's because of Christ's struggle that he can grant us compassion. It is because of Christ's struggle that he turns that ear to us when we are in our weakness. It's because of his struggle, the the trouble by experience, his faithful obedience, that we then receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
When we face that trouble on the inside, where do we turn? We turn to the one who faced the trouble for us. We turned, turn to our great high priest. We find compassion and mercy. Fourth, Christ's troubled soul also reminds us that we never need to let our hearts be troubled. When we do have trouble, we turn to our great high priest. But here we're reminded that we don't have to have our hearts be troubled ever. And I draw this from a contrast that we're going to see. There's a contrast. In verse 27, we read that Jesus' heart was troubled. But now turn to John 14 for a moment, 14.1. What is Jesus going to tell his apostles? In fact, it's a command. Do not let what? your heart be troubled. So Jesus commands his disciples to not be what he was. It's inconsistent, isn't it? I'm troubled, but I'm commanding you not to be troubled. What's going on here? What's the application? It is simply this. Christ bore every trouble that could ever be experienced, and he bore it to the fullest degree. Every trouble which means that all who are united to him through faith need never let our hearts be troubled. He took our trouble. He bore our trouble. His victory in John 12 over his trouble there, his victory over his trouble is his victory over our trouble. We're united to him. He took upon himself our sin. He also took upon himself our trouble, any trembling we might have. Which is why Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Rest in me. See the goodness of the Father through my turmoil. See my faith. You're united to me. This is why we can cast all our cares upon him. We can rest in him. And then fifth, fifth application we can draw here. Christ's turmoil as he approached his cross reveals the sureness of our salvation. The sureness of our salvation. His agitation of soul confirms, confirms that sin was actually laid upon him. It was not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. His unrest here shows us that Christ actually felt sin's weight. He actually paid sin's penalty. He actually experienced his father's wrath. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He felt the burden of man's sin pressing his own. It was the mighty weight of a world's guilt imputed to him and meeting on his head which made him groan and agonize and cry, now is my soul troubled. Forever let us cling to that doctrine as the only ground of solid comfort for the heart of a Christian. That our sins have been really laid on our divine substitute, substitute and borne by him. And that his righteousness is really imputed to us and accounted ours. This is Christian peace. 
Christ's trouble is our peace. And if any man asks how we know that our sins were laid on Christ, we bid him read such passages as that which is before us and explain them on any other principle if he can. Christ has borne our sins, carried our sins, groaned under the burden of our sins. He's been troubled in soul by the weight of our sins and really taken away our sins. This, we may rest assured, is sound doctrine. This is scriptural theology. The turmoil of Christ is what instills peace to the Christian. Amazing. This is the first effect of Christ's cross into the power to trouble the Savior's soul. Look at effect number two here. We'll just touch on this. Effect number two, Christ's cross is the power to display the Father's glory. Christ's cross has the power to display the Father's glory. Jesus knows what's at stake. If he does not die on the cross, salvation is lost. God's grace is nullified. And Satan wins. Satan receives the glory. And so Jesus offers the greatest prayer that can be prayed at this time. This is the prayer that undergirds all faith. This is the prayer of ultimate submission to his Father's plan. Verse 28, here's the prayer. Father, by one request, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Let's put it this way. Father, put me on the cross. Or this, Father, I submit my will and my horror to your will and your perfection. I know that the cross will be where you are most magnified. Therefore, Father, glorify your name. Use me for your glory. What does glorify mean? It means to put on display, to showcase. With reference to God, it means to showcase his attributes so that he can be praised and honored and worshipped. And according to Jesus here, nowhere is the glory of God most clearly seen than on the cross of his son. Glorify your name. Put your majesty on display by putting me on the cross. It's amazing. Where is the glory of God most seen? It's not in the Shekinah bursting forth light we see in the Old Testament. It is on the shame of the cross. It's where the Father's love is magnified. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the magnitude of the love of the Father. It's on the cross where God's wrath Toward sin is revealed even, listen, even if sin is credited to his perfect son's account, the perfect one, the son of his love, even if sin is credited to his perfect son's account, God must punish it. This is his wrath. We see his mercy demonstrated there. We learn at the cross how God can be both just and forgiving at the same time. 
We see his faithfulness on the cross because the Old Testament prophesies of the cross. Look to the cross, you see the patience of God. Look to the cross, you see the wisdom of God. You see the grace of God. This is why Paul says, may it never be that I would, what, boast glory in anything other than the cross. It's where the Father is most glorified. So that is the prayer that undergirds everything Jesus does. Glorify your name. And again, to bring some application here, Christ is our example. How are we to pray when our soul is troubled? What are we to ask when the path of obedience is hard? Father, remove this difficulty from my life. Father, grant me a new path. Father, give me relief. It's not how Jesus prayed here. In fact, that's not how Jesus taught us to pray, is it? Jesus taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed, be glorified, is your name. That's what Jesus prays for himself. His emotions were conflicted. His heart is disturbed. His prayer is not save me. He's like, no, 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 use me. Use me to glorify you. Hallowed your be your name. Even if that means death and abandonment and forsaken of me. How significant is this kind of prayer? How significant is humbling ourselves in submission to the glory of God? How significant is that? Well, continue the verse. Not only is this kind of prayer heard by the Father, but notice it was also audibly answered by the Father. Then a voice, verse 28, then a voice came out of heaven. That is significant. It's only three times in all the four Gospels where the Father speaks audibly. Always at major turning points in Jesus' life. The first time the Father speaks is at Jesus' baptism. He's entering into his messianic ministry. The second time is at Jesus' transfiguration. They're talking about the cross and here now. The third time. The Father speaks. This is the only time in John's gospel the Father is recorded as speaking. Why now? Why here? Because the Father knows that the crisis of the cross has become most heavy for his Son. The Father's reinforcing his Son's faith, securing his Son's resolve. He's calming his Son's troubled soul. Finish the verse. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That is to say, son, remain faithful to that cross. Even though in your holiness you are repelled by the thought of it, continue to trust me because the cross will be where your work, where your work of bringing me glory will find its culmination. 
I have both glorified it. I've glorified my name, past tense. I've glorified myself through your incarnation. I've glorified myself through your miracles and your teaching and your submission. But there's more glory coming. Stay the course. I will, future tense, I will glorify it again when you die. I've glorified my name in the past. I will glorify my name in the future when I put you on your cross. The cross will be your final way of bringing me glory. Stay the course. This is the power of the cross. It is the greatest display of the Father's glory. This is why we glory in the cross. This is why we cannot and must not stay silent about the cross. This is why we never can forget the cross or be ashamed about the cross. This is why we boast only in the cross. Think of what Paul wrote. We are to know nothing. We are to know nothing. What is supreme? What is the pinnacle of who we are? We are to know nothing except Jesus Christ and his cross. For it is the very power of God unto salvation. Christians are cross-centered people who live cross-centered lives. We love the old rugged cross, don't we? There's a third effect. We'll pick it up here next week. Effect number three, Christ's cross has the power to expose the world's sin. Christ's cross also has the power to expose the world's sin again. We'll pick it up there next time. Father, uh, you have given us a picture of just how weighty the death of Jesus is. And we confess to you that quite often we forget the weightiness of it. We forget the power of Christ's death. Forgive us, Lord. We come to you often not even thinking about the cross, why we can come to you. We take for granted, perhaps, our reconciliation with you. We are not faithful. We're not faithful to proclaim the cross. We boast in ourselves, in our goodness, our obedience. Failing to boast in the obedience of Jesus as he walked to the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for that. May we be cross-centered people who live cross-centered lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.